So, last week, Ben did a great job preaching the last verses of Hebrews chapter 5. He referred also to the parable of the sower, and that was an apt supporting scripture to help gain an understanding of the type of audience the writer to the Hebrews was dealing with. Today we're moving towards Hebrews chapter 6, that comes after Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, Hebrews chapter 6 should scare you. Should. Hebrews chapter 6 should scare you. And I'm not joking at all. I actually want Hebrews chapter 6 to scare us, but not in the wrong way. I don't believe the reading of Hebrews 6 should produce insecurity in your relationship with God. When you read any scriptures, I don't think it's supposed to undermine your confidence in God. I don't think it's supposed to bring you to a place of insecurity or doubting your salvation and so on. However, I do believe that scripture should sometimes instill the fear of God in us. So I do want Hebrews 6 to rightly instill the fear of God in us, but I don't want it to produce insecurity in anyone. And therefore, to lay a platform for studying Hebrews chapter 6, you need to have a solid foundation in the security of salvation. That's what I want to deal with today. It's not going to be a sermon so much as a lesson, looking at as many scriptures as possible to provide a sense of the breadth and the depth of the biblical evidence for eternal security. You'll come to understand what I mean by eternal security as we go along. I'm going to work from Michael Eaton's notes on eternal security in his systematic theology. And some of you who may have listened to or or studied Michael Eaton would recognize some of the things I'll say. And uh, I'll stop when our time is up and we'll continue next week. In other words, it's unlikely that I'm going to get through as much as I'd love to get through this morning. But before I go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we want you to be present here and to speak to us. Lord, I ask that your word would speak deep into our hearts this morning and change the way that we see everything so that we see more clearly, so that we see more truly, so that we know you more deeply, so that we celebrate what you've done more actively in Jesus' name. Amen. So this question of eternal security could be phrased another way. It could be a question of can you lose your salvation or how do you keep your salvation if you need to keep it? It's, it's, a, it's a question many people have at some point in their Christian walk. Can you ever fall away from salvation? Now, my answer is no. Ultimately, you cannot. That's my answer. I know other people who believe differently, and I love them, and uh, I disagree with them, and they should believe differently because if they've studied and gained a conviction, that's fine. However... I want to wrestle for the Word of God to be preeminent, not just some kind of uh, ideas that we got taught by our own past. Because in my early days as a Christian, I read Bibles and I was taught in a charismatic church uh, a part of the teachings you get in a part of the church, and they taught that you could lose your salvation. And I very much lived in fear that one day maybe I would be on bad terms with God again, and I would lose my salvation. And yet... Over the many years that followed that, studying the Word of God simply with an open mind, I've come to be completely convinced that you will not ultimately lose your salvation if you are truly in Christ. And this is the issue. You are in this position as a believer. You are in Christ, and you will be in Christ forever. 
You, you don't lose your salvation, and there's a reason for that. It's because you can't lose something that you didn't obtain yeah. for yourself. It is free. How can you lose something that's free? You can only lose something of that nature if there's something to be paid, or something to be given, or something to be done. In other words, if I buy a lounge suite, I, it could be repossessed if I'm still paying off my lounge suite. But if my parents give me that lounge suite, it is mine. Nobody can take it away from me. It's, it's, it's done. It belongs to me. If your justification is without works, how can you lose it? It is without works anyway, so nothing can be missing. In other words, there can be no work left undone if your justification is not by works. If justification is by faith alone, then there is no work to add to justification, not even to keep it. There can be nothing missing. If you're saved by doing nothing, how can you lose doing nothing? You know, it's impossible. You're saved by the grace of God and Jesus is ever living to make intercession for you. Do you think his intercession will fail? Do you think God will say to Jesus, Well, no, I heard you, but I don't think I'm going to give you that one to be with you forever. He's sinning too much. See, if Jesus is saying, God, give me what you've promised. Give me my inheritance. Give me this child, this sheep. The Father doesn't say, no, the Father says, yes. The Father doesn't say, oh, he's sinning too much, you can't have him anymore. Because that would imply that there's something that the blood of Jesus can't deal with. Do you think the blood of Jesus could meet with something that it does not cover? How can you possibly lose salvation? You can't. And now I'm going to show you that the scriptures not only imply this, but they actually state it explicitly. So, first up. The Father, God the Father, chose His people to come to the status of sonship in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So the Father has chosen His people to come to the status of sonship in Christ that's what his goal is. That's what he's decided to do. Secondly, he has the power to keep believers in their salvation. So now you have to understand not only does God choose you and plan for you to be his son and make you his son, but he has the power to preserve you, to keep you in that. Romans 8 verse 28 says, And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The ones the Father foreknew, predestined, called, and justified are the same ones He brings to glorification in the future. None are lost in this process. Scripture doesn't accommodate that. Scripture reads this as a process. It shows you that there's no interruption. And that's what Paul wanted us to see, that none are lost in the process. The Father's love for believers also guarantees their security. We can see this 
from Romans chapter 5 verse 7 to 10. Sorry, this one's a bit small. I'll read it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Do you see that? So you were His enemy in sinning and He saved you. Now you're His son and you sin, you will not be rejected. How much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. They are in Christ. Christ cannot be lost. He never dies, nor do they. That's how it works. You are in Christ. Christ never dies. He's never lost. You will not be lost. You will never die. So that's the father's position. The son, the son has redeemed the believer. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So through the son we have forgiveness of our trespasses, past, present and future. All your sin is taken care of at Calvary. It was the plan all along that Jesus would atone for the sin of the world and the sin of your whole life. There's not some sin in the future of your life that Jesus didn't atone for. Yeah. Also, the Son has removed the wrath of God from the believer. Romans 3 verse 25. Did I get to Romans 3 verse 25? It's on the previous slide. Yeah. There, still. Romans 3 verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith... This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. So Romans 3 verse 25 says, Christ has propitiated or turned away the wrath of God for our sin by His blood. And in Romans 5 verse 1, we see that we are justified. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are past tense questions. It's done. We're justified. We're set right with God. The Son has also provided forgiveness. We see this in Colossians 2 verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So you were dead and you were made alive. And now you're alive and you are being sanctified. But does it depend on you? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, we see that the Son is the one who sanctifies to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Moreover, Christ prays for believers to be with Him. And now it's going to become even more interesting. This is very important stuff. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Remember, Scripture teaches that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. In other words, God chose you before He created the world to belong to Him. Now Jesus is actually praying and saying, Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And he continues, Jesus not only prays for believers to be with him, but he continues to advocate for us to this day. Um, I think that was still in the previous slide there. It's 1 John 2 verse 1. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So even though as a believer I sin, there is my advocate at the right hand of the Father saying, Father, I've died for him. You punished me for his sin. So the Father says, justified, 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 even if I continue to sin as a believer. To what end? Well, it's done. Jesus can't go back onto the cross and say, wait, I want to take back the drops of blood I shed for him. It's done. He continues to make intercession as the believer's high priest. In Hebrews 7 verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now we were talking about priests and high priests in this study of Hebrews. Let me just say to you, if a believer could be lost, it would imply Christ is ineffective in his work as the believer's intercessor. This text we're looking at, Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If I am to be lost in the future, Jesus has failed. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer forever. This is the description of the seal that we are given when we become a believer. Um, I didn't put this. Oh yes, here it is. So firstly, I've gone a step too far. The Holy Spirit, He regenerates the believer. Titus 3 verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit regenerates a believer. What that means by regeneration is that He makes you alive when you were dead spiritually. And then the Holy Spirit indwells the believer forever as a seal. We read about that in Ephesians 4 verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So that means that when you become a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit of God's ownership of you that stands for the full claim on your life in the day of redemption, at the end of the process. There's nowhere in Scripture that it implies that that goes wrong. In fact, I used to think about it like this. I was a slave to sin, and I couldn't free myself. I'm now a slave to righteousness, and I cannot free myself. I belong to God now that He has purchased me. I do not have a say in this matter. That's what Scripture would teach us. You could not save yourself from your sin. But when Christ bound the strong man and took away his possessions, they belonged to Christ. And you are now a slave to righteousness and you cannot ransom yourself from Jesus. You cannot free yourself from him if you are a believer. You can spit at him. You can curse him. You can be angry with God. You can be very upset that He didn't answer your prayer and very disappointed that Christianity isn't making you happy. But if He owns you, He owns you. That's how it works in Scripture. The believer is baptized into union with Christ and into the body of believers 
we see in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So I've shown you work from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For a believer to lose his salvation would demand a reversal and an undoing of all these works of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So, let me tell you what it's really about. The key issue in the discussion of the believer's security concerns the issue of who does the saving. If man is responsible for securing his salvation, then he can be lost. If God secures the person's salvation, then the person is secure forever. I was trying to think of a way to describe this to us that we can understand it. You were drowning in your sins like a man drowning in the ocean. Many were drowning around you at the same time. All of humanity is drowning in their sins. God came into your life and rescued you. He came and saved you. He found you. He opened your eyes. He gave you a new life. You were dead in your transgressions. You were His enemy. But He came and He found you and He pulled you out of the ocean. He's now saved you and He's held you and He's actually made you His own. And now He doesn't let you go. And whether you like it or not, you kick and scream. I want to go back and I want to drown. He's a lifesaver. He's not a killer. He's not sending you back in the ocean. He's holding on to you because He knew all your past, present and future when He saved you. He saw your whole life when He chose you. And He went into the ocean where you were drowning and He rescued you. And now you're in His arms and He says, I won't let you go. That's what Scripture teaches us. But we say, no, I'm free. I can do what I like. So I renounce Jesus and I can become a Hindu. Well, that I don't suppose you overpowered Jesus. I don't suppose that that declaration now makes Jesus think He owns you any less. He's not going to reject you or let you go. So there are a couple of other questions that you could ask after that statement I just made about you renounce Jesus and become a Hindu. We can look at those next week. Today all I want you to see is the overwhelming emphasis of Scripture on the security of a believer that you are eternally secure because the work of salvation is God's work. And so we go on. John tells us that Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, is actually under a promise to His Father. Jesus is bound by a promise to His Father. He says in John 6 verse 37, this is Jesus speaking actually, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Jesus has made a commitment to the Father that He's not going to lose anything that God the Father has entrusted to Him. And the will of the Father is that He should lose nothing of all that He was given, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 
I looked at Jesus many, many years ago and I believed and I received eternal life. And something happened that changed me radically. I was born again. That's the word we use from the Bible. What, what must happen, Jesus? You must be born again, he says. So I was born again. And at that point, I came into this story as someone who had looked on the Son and believed in Him and received eternal life. Now, if Jesus said, here is eternal life, but by the way, not for you, because 30 years from now, you're going to renounce me and become a Hindu. It was never eternal, was it? So, okay, that's just logic. So I'm just, I sound passionate about this because I want us to have a very deep understanding, a clear conviction that the security that you have is real. That God's salvation doesn't fail. Yes. That He saves us and He keeps us. Yes. Now what you do as a Christian matters. And we'll get to that for sure. You can understand when we get to Hebrews 6, you should be afraid. But you should not be afraid of losing your salvation. And not only has Jesus got this, this um, obligation to His Father, He has an obligation to His sheep that He declares. And we see that in... John 10, verse 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's His commitment to you and me. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, Jesus is now saying, I am the protector of the sheep. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. In his high priestly prayer before his death, Jesus asked that those whom the Father had given him would be preserved to glory. Let's look at this in John chapter 17. Sorry, this is really tiny. I'll read it a bit slower. John 17 verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So there's the, Jesus speaking that he's been given authority to give eternal life to all that have been given to him. So Jesus can give me eternal life. In John 17 verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they've kept your word. So, the Father chose, gave them to Jesus. Psalm 2 verse 8, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ethnos, a people from every nation, tribe and tongue, to be the possession of Jesus. John 17 verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In other words, Jesus knows that we as his sheep were the Father's possession. And in John 17 verse 24, Father... I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus asks that high priestly prayer that we would be with him in the presence of God to see his glory. It is inconceivable that his prayer, which still continues according to Hebrews 7.25, it's inconceivable that his prayer will go unanswered. That's between him and the Father. It's not between you and me. That's a question of Jesus and his relationship with the Father when it comes to the promises of God to his Son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. 
Father, I want them to be where I am. Son, this is exactly my plan. This is what's going to happen. This is not just one verse in the Bible. This is verse after verse after verse explaining that God chooses and saves and it's for His Son's glory and inheritance. It's not about you and me. It's not that simple that it's just for me to have a better life being a Christian. I'm actually caught up in something far, far superior to anything I could even imagine. And if you think, doesn't that just make me like an ant? Well, then I say, what is man that you are mindful of him? That should be our response. Why does God even care for us that he would want to have us as his own? So we, we go further and we read, if this is the case, if this is the conversation between the father and the son, who is there left to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, if the condemnation or the rejection is not coming from God, then there is nobody else that can interfere. That's right. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. So his resurrection proved that everything is satisfied. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Consequently, Hebrews 7 verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus emphasizes that he gives eternal life to the sheep and they cannot ever perish. We've seen the scripture just now. John 10 verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In the actual Greek, there's a double negative for emphasis. It is not simply they will never perish. It is actually literally they will not never perish. Meaning no never No, never. It's a double negative for emphasis. They will not ever, no, never perish. That's what Jesus said. So Paul sees the sovereign plan of God for the salvation of his elect as a unitary whole of which the glorifying of the justified is simply one part. Those he he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. On this basis, on that text, he builds up to this glorious passage, which you must have bad eyesight in the wrong way, I mean like zoom eyes, to read. We know this text well because we celebrate this part of it, Romans 8 verse 31 onwards. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. The conqueror already wins. We more than conquer. In other words, with ease through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, which yeah. you are a part of, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul celebrates the present and future security of the saints in the almighty love of God. He indicates that the ones God foreknew, he predestined, called, justified, and will also ultimately glorify. None are lost in this process. In Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul rejoices in the certainty that God will complete the good work that he began in us. In Philippians 1 verse 6 we read, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's another verse that says the beginning goes to the predictable end. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7 and 8 or 8 and 9 Sorry, it's a bit small. I'll read it. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is in the context of waiting for Jesus' return. Who will sustain you to the end? Yeah. There it is. Who's going to keep me saved? Not me. Jesus. And he will sustain me to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why guiltless? Not because I'm sinless but because of the blood of Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Whose faithfulness? God's faithfulness. So, more and more Scripture will just build and build this argument so we can read on. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Yeah. I want to scream hallelujah. Honestly, I do. When I read that, I think, thank God that it doesn't depend on me. I'm so unstable. I'm so ineffective. But Jesus is 100% effective and completely faithful and trustworthy. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Is that, I need to move on. There, last one now. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. There are people in the church that tell you how much you have to watch out for the devil. The Bible tells me Jesus is watching out for the devil. It does tell you, don't be unaware of the devil's schemes and he... You know, it goes about like a roaring lion. Yes, there are warnings, but yes, there are also assurances. Yeah. You don't live in this, beware of the devil, you could suddenly become demon-possessed fear. The demons can't possess me. I'm Holy Spirit-possessed. They can oppress me, they can demonize me, they can... The demons can really mess with the person, even a believer. I'm not saying that there isn't such stuff. That requires some kind of deliverance or some kind of breaking of strongholds. I believe in spiritual warfare. I believe in deliverance ministry. But the, the root fear that the church sometimes propagates is not biblical. Yeah. The idea is Jesus is more than enough. Jesus will always win. And in the end, it's Him who is guarding you against the devil. In vain, the, 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 unless the Lord builds the house... The laborers labor in vain. In vain you stay up watching unless the Lord watches over you. I'm paraphrasing. But the point is your security is God. He guards you against evil, not G4S. 
whatever. They help. But in the end, it's God. Yeah. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 and 4 verse 18. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And now when we look at Ephesians chapter 1, we see a, a phenomenal chapter where we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit again planning and working out salvation. God the Father planned the salvation of certain ones and marked them out for salvation. We read this in Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's the Father's perspective. We go on and see that God the Son secured their salvation by redeeming them through His blood. And this is Ephesians 1 verse 7 to 12. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And then God the Holy Spirit effected their salvation by sealing them, the sign of their eternal security, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So Paul said, there is now no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is never condemnation for them. You have eternal life, not life till you backslide, not life for a couple of years, everlasting life, eternal life. It is put very explicitly, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. What can be clearer than that? If you wanted to say that you cannot lose your salvation, how could you say it in any stronger way than that? I give them eternal life, it is theirs, it belongs to them. No one can pluck them from my hand. No one can pluck them from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are both working together to make sure that nothing ever plucks you from our hands. I mean, how can you overturn that? This is the new covenant, says Jeremiah chapter 32. This is the new covenant. I will never break it. The old covenant was breakable. The new covenant is unbreakable. Here is the new covenant. It's not like the old covenant which they broke. In Jeremiah 32, we read, I will never turn from them, and I will so put the fear of me in their hearts that they will never turn from me. Beautiful. I will never turn from them, and I will so put the fear of me in their hearts that they will never turn from me. I'm going to deal with that next week. Okay, I'm dealing with 
God's side this week. I'll talk about us next week because we have to ask then who is the backslider and what are the consequences of his backsliding. So if today is eternal security, then let's call next week who is the backslider and figure out if it's you or me. Because <laughs> it could be. But can you get anything stronger than that? A covenant which is unbreakable, that God will not turn from you and you will not turn from him. How can you say anything stronger than that? Jeremiah chapter 32 is such a strong statement. It's a description of the covenant. Paul works it, the new covenant. Paul works it all out in great detail. It's the theme of Romans chapter 8. He begins with the basic statement, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Some Bibles say, who do not live according to the sinful nature. Those words are not original. They were added later. You might have them in a footnote, but don't be persuaded. There is no condemnation. It's an absolute statement. And then Paul begins to work it out. The law can't help me. Jesus has done this, not the law, because I'm in the Holy Spirit. No matter what sufferings I might go through, they're not worthy to comp be compared to the glory that's coming. If I do not know what to pray for, it doesn't even matter. The Holy Spirit is praying. These are arguments Paul makes. Paul is using every argument he can provide. He's insisting that you cannot go back to the fact, and thus you don't need to go back to the feeling of being condemned. You cannot go back into a state of being condemned, so you should never go back into the feeling of being condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation ever for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul argues that because it's a fact that you're not condemned, you shouldn't go back to the feeling. So what do we mean by once saved, always saved? Well, as Michael Eaton describes it, he believes in something called the everlasting security of true salvation. Others call it the perseverance of the saints. John Calvin called it the perpetuity and indestructibility of faith. I love that. The perpetuity, which means the ongoing nature forever and ever into the future, and indestructibility of faith. So, this faith is not just any old faith like the faith you had that put you on that chair when you sat down. You believed it wouldn't collapse under you. That's faith. For some, it's more than others. <laughs> some of these chairs require faith. If you look at your chair, sometimes it's a little bit like this and you need to build your faith before you sit down. I've even had that feeling. But there's another kind of faith that the Bible would describe as the faith that leads to salvation. It's the faith that is the believing in Jesus that results in regeneration. Changes everything. What does eternal security mean? It does not mean that anyone who made a decision for Christ is eternally saved. The doctrine is not once a profession of conversion is made, such a person is eternally secure. That's not what I'm teaching. It's not just that I've prayed a prayer or I made some confession. There are many people who accept the teaching of the Christian church or who make a decision that they will take up the Christian faith or prayed a prayer and had it answered or who experienced a miraculous healing or who were pressured into being baptized or feel they have to say they're Christians because of loyalty to their parents or they're loyal to the church or being part of a Christian country. There are many people who think they're Christian just because they were in a context of Christianity, grew up in a Christian home, pleased their parents, got baptized when they thought it was time to be baptized. They are not necessarily eternally saved because it's not 100% certain that they were saved in the first place. I don't even know my own boys 
In my own family, I don't know if they're all saved. Some of them might have just decided to do what seems to please their parents at the right time of life and got baptized. I don't know what personal ownership of faith they carry. I don't know if they truly love God from their hearts. And I should, over time, figure it out. I mean, I'll be able to figure it out when I see what they do. By their fruit, you'll know them. But they're very young still. They could be pretending well, just towing the line because I feed them. I mean, they're not going to rebel outright while they depend on me. But wait till they leave home. Wait till they're not being encouraged to go to church every Sunday. Wait till they don't have to sit in the front row and set an example to the rest because their dad's a pastor. I've never told them they should set an example. I don't want them to live by proxy through my faith. I want them to have their own faith. But they could easily come across as Christians and still not have personal ownership of everything that I believe in here. The teaching has to do with regeneration. It must be realized that regeneration, that should be a blank slide not to distract you. Regeneration is a very powerful thing. I'm going to wrap up very soon and then the band will come up. But regeneration is not merely accepting a few doctrines or making a decision. This is something that Bishop John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle said, and I'll read a quote from him. Sue said, I better put it on the PowerPoint if I read a long quote. So, J.C. Ryle said this, The new birth is a very radical and powerful change by which we once more recover something of the divine nature and are renewed after the image of God. It is a complete transforming and altering of all the inner man. It is to enter upon a new existence, to be given a new mind and a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings and new dislikings, new fears, new joys, new sorrows and new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God in ourselves and the world and the life to come and the way in which the life from above is received. The person who has experienced these things is a new person, a new creation. He or she has received forever an utterly new bias and direction. So this is actually why I don't believe in losing your salvation. Because I don't think God does and then discards those changes. I don't think regeneration then results in extinguishing God then snuffing out. And saying, it worked for a while but now you've fallen. It's not in scripture. See, it's not purely outward change. It's not like Herod, who stopped doing some things and then started again. Or Ahab, who humbled himself for a while and then didn't. It's not just adopting some new ideas for a while, playing around with the possibility that Christianity might be true. It's not enjoying Christian music or the friendship of Christian young people or Christian parents. It doesn't mean those things. It is the implanting of a new spirit which will surely and certainly bear good fruit. It is opening the eyes of the blind and unstopping the ears of the deaf. deaf. It is loosing the tongue of the dumb and giving hands and feet to the maimed and lame. He that is born again does not easily then turn away. And what we're going to look at from next week is just then what happens in terms of backsliding and what can be the consequences of that. What are some biblical examples of that and what... What 
what's at stake really if your salvation is secure? Don't you want to know? I mean, if you can go on living as you please now and not go to hell, you've been born again. What are the risks? Why would you not just have a good time and die? And that's what we're going to look at next week. But today, I want you to see how overwhelming Scripture is in its truth that what God has done, God has done.